Well, let's, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you uh, for what's happened in our nation over the weekend, uh, a new day hopefully dawning. Um, we pray that this would be the first step back toward you as a, a nation. And I too give thanks for the courage of justices who literally put their lives on the line and the, their children's lives on the line, their careers, um, to do the right thing. And we, we pray that uh, by returning this into the hands of the people, um, we as a nation would re move away from the idea that killing the unborn is somehow a good thing. Um, forgive us for where we've been, Lord, and for any ways that we've been accomplices in that. And please receive us back as a nation. Once again, Lord, create the U U United States of America into being a city set on a hill, a beacon and a lighthouse, however imperfect, to show the rest of the world what uh, true justice and liberty uh, really looks like. Uh, and may that always be the legacy of this country. And we pray that you would raise up in these next two elections um, some goodly and godly, healthy, biblically faithful men and women who cannot be bought, who will not lie, who will occupy seats in the House, in the Senate, and the White House. And they who will go to Washington to serve, not feed at the trough, who will go to Washington to uphold the Constitution and the rule of law with compassion rather than just join the Millionaires Club and the Georgetown Cocktail Party Circuit. Uh, Lord, we can't fix it politically, economically, or militarily. Only you can fix this country. We pray that in your grace and mercy, you would choose to do so. And you would enable us to be part of the solution, not a part of the problem. And that you would empower your church to be um, uh, the hands and feet of Jesus, whatever happens in the future of this country. Use any rising persecution against your church to refine your church and make us more faithful. May that begin right here at First Press. Guide us now uh, as we spend some time talking about uh, the demonic and Satan and put your hedge of protection around us and around our families. Uh, we joke about Satan, but we don't take him lightly. Um, and uh, help us to wage a faithful spiritual warfare against the powers and principalities of darkness and to advance your kingdom of light. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I, I wanted to, going back to last week, you know, the, the, the question, um, uh, did God really say that? And how Satan keeps coming to us. And did God really say that in Scripture? I, and I talked about how liberal theology, once it dethroned the Bible as being the inspired and errant word of God, and it's just another document that you might find some helpful religious hints in there. Um, that's the legacy of our former denomination. Thank goodness we're out of there. And uh, we take the Bible seriously here. But uh, being a liberal Christian is really convenient because did God really say that? Nah, probably not. You know, that was probably a, uh, a redactor, an editor put that in Jesus' mouth later on. He never would have said anything like that. So it's a, it's a very easy Christianity. Um, it's difficult to follow Christ when you take the Bible as the Word of God from 
Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. Uh, and you have to really bring your life under that and try to live accordingly. That's the hard way uh, to follow Christ. And I, I left out a, my prize illustration last week of a, a group that, that uh, does that. Have you ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? Um, back when Time Magazine and um, Newsweek, when they actually were such things, Every Christmas and Easter, they would always have an issue trying to debunk Easter or the Incarnation. You know? And they'd always go to two, one person in a group. They'd always go to a guy named Bart Ehrman, who's a professor at University of North Carolina, who was an evangelical Christian. Now he's gone off the rails. And uh, he's a PhD, so he, he would you know, talk about how probably Jesus really didn't even live, blah, blah, blah. And they'd go to the Jesus Seminar. These are a bunch of Christian scholars who have lost their faith. And they gather, they gathered for, I don't know, about 15 years. And they would meet, most of them had PhDs and taught in divinity schools around the nation. And they went through the New Testament and voted, voted on what Jesus really said and what he didn't say. And then they would publish their results. They'd vote, they give you, they had a black marble, a gray marble, and a pink marble, and a red marble. And they'd look at a saying like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Did Jesus really say, if you voted with your black marble, it meant no. Gray, maybe. Pink. Probably red, yes, definitely. What do you think the percentage, after they, all, after they went through the entire Gospels, what do you think the percentage, according to the Jesus Seminar, was of what Jesus actually said? Of what's, what did he really say of everything in the Gospels? Anybody want to take a guess? Hmm? No, no, you're actually... Anybody else want to take a guess? Eighty. Eighty. They came to the conclusion that Jesus did not say 80% of what he was purported to say. So, uh, the Jesus Seminar. I remember reading an article about, by a, a, a religion, religion writer who visited the Jesus Seminar one day to report on them, because they were kind of hot back in the 90s. And... Um, he said it was, and this guy, I don't know where he was spiritually, but he said it was really kind of sad. He said, here are these guys voting on <laughs> what Jesus said or didn't say. But you know what happened? He said, when they had a break, there was a piano in there and somebody could play and they would go to the piano and they would play the great old hymns of the faith and sing them with gusto. And he said, I saw tears coming down their eyes and he said I could see into their souls this is the faith they wish they still had but could then they would finish that and go back and vote down <laughs> whatever else they thought Jesus didn't say so um, whenever you think you can sit in judgment over <laughs> Jesus and over the Bible uh, and yet that's classic liberal Christianity and that's why this church decided to get 
off that train. We were never liberals. We, we were on the train heading uh, that way, and we got off. Thank God. Okay, we're going to look. Uh, this is our last Sunday to talk about questions Satan asks. And actually, he doesn't ask the questions here. Some of his minions do. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 28. We're going to look at verses 20, uh, Matthew 8, verses 28 through 34. There's a parallel to this in Luke 4, 31 through 37, and also in Mark 5. Um, I'm going to just stay pretty much with the Matthew 8 text. And let me go ahead and, and read that. And there's actually two questions here that come, come from the pit of hell. And uh, here's the way it goes. It's a, it's a story uh, about Jesus and his encounter with a couple of guys. And when Jesus came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, Question number one, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? And then the second question, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Kind of an interesting story. Luke has... Jesus encountering uh, same two questions, but from just one demon-possessed man. And that man is not out in the countryside. He's in the synagogue. Now, that's a place where you probably wouldn't expect to find demons. But here's something I want to tell you. If you haven't figured this out, um, you need to. Satan and his minions like to hang out in churches. <laughs> if you're a pastor, one of the, the perks of being a pastor, we get to see how sausage is made. And we get to see behind the curtain. And whoa, I remember Dick Ryan used to be an associate pastor here. My first year, he kind of pulled me aside and kind of mentored me. And uh, he, he said, uh, Ron, if you can work on a church staff and remain a Christian, that's a miracle in itself. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> you see, all and you know, uh, I remember uh, back in, oh gosh, it must have been about 85 or something. Anybody know the name Scott Peck? He's a Harvard-trained psychiatrist. He wrote a national bestseller called The Road Less Traveled, which was really a good book, which has the classic first sentence, life is difficult. I read that book, and I thought, this guy is really sharp. Well, he came out a couple of years later with a second volume, uh, really not connected to the first, second book, called People of the Lie. Anybody read People of the Lie? Oh, you gotta get it and read it. The introduction itself is worth the price of the book, because in the introduction, Scott Peck, 
Harvard-trained atheist psychiatrist tells how he comes to Christ. In researching this book, he, he encountered in his practice so many people who came to him and said, I think I'm having problems with demons, which he thought was crazy. And so he began to do research and <laughs> he comes to Christ. And then the premise of the book is most of us are amazed when we encounter somebody in the church. Like, you know, the, 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 the citywide acclaimed Boy Scout leader who's been caught doing some bad stuff. And oh, he was an elder in the church. And, and, and well, how can that be? Peck's premise is that people of the lie, like this guy, where is a better place to hang out so that nobody will suspect whose side you're really on if you, if you hang out at the church? And so I'll just tell you, as a pastor, the most evil people I've ever met have been in the churches I've pastored. But also the most gracious and wonderful people I've known. But I, I'm glad. Now, I read that book and I gave it to Zabendon. I said, Louis, you've got to read this. And then there was a guy who used to be a member of the church named Bill Germer. He's a, still a local psychologist, still a good friend of mine. And uh, Bill had gone to seminary. He wanted to be a Methodist pastor and then decided not to. And really went away from the faith, then came back and found his way, he and Kathy, to First Pres and became very active here. And I said, Lewis, we ought to give this to Germer and get his take on it. So I'll never forget, we, he read it and we took him out to lunch. His first thing he said to me and Lewis, he says, gosh, you guys just got me back believing in God. Now you're trying to get me to believe in demons too. But um, people of the lie, get that and read it. You'll go, oh, that's why that was happening. So uh, good, good book. So um, don't be surprised where, that Satan doesn't show up. Be surprised if he doesn't show up in church. You know, one of the things I don't like about this text is, you know, I'm an animal lover. I was going to be a large animal vet, and I don't like the Luke's account says there were 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of swine. And I like pigs. They're actually kind of affectionate animals. And Bertrand Russell, he flagged this text as a reason he doesn't believe in God. Because if God was truly compassionate, he wouldn't allow all these pigs to, you know, die. This, this is kind of Satan's Bay of Pigs fiasco here. Um, we'll get to that in just a minute. I want to point out a couple of things to you. Um, this is the country of the Gadarenes. This is Gentile territory. And that's not where good Jews go. Well, Jesus is not a good Jew. He's the son of God. And he goes where nobody else will go. He goes to minister to everybody. And so he goes into, from a Jewish perspective, hostile territory. And he meets these two guys hanging out in the tombs. They're ferocious. They're demon-possessed. Now, let me just answer a question that's probably on your mind. Now, these guys are not Christians. Uh, doesn't say they are. I hope they were after this. But probably a question you ask yourself, and maybe some others have asked you. Can a Christian be possessed by demons? I think the scriptures are pretty clear. No. Why? Because 
when you accept Christ, the only reason you accepted Christ is because the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart, enabled you to surrender your life to Christ. And when you did that, the Holy Spirit didn't just go, oh, good, check him off, see ya. The Holy Spirit actually indwells you, takes up residence inside of you. If you're a believer in Christ, you're never alone. The Holy Spirit's inside of you. I don't think you can make a case scripturally that the Holy Spirit can coexist inside someone and, and demons can coexist with the Holy Spirit. It just, it ain't going to work. Christians can be attacked, buffeted, harassed by the demonic. In fact, if you haven't been, you may just not be aware of it. Or you may be on the wrong, on, on the wrong road. Wait a minute, Rama. I'm a Bible-believing Orthodox Christian. So, t turn to James 2:19 in your Bibles. A lot of Christians think, "Hey, I'm a Christian because I believe all the right things." Is that what makes you a Christian? Believing all the right things about Jesus, believing the Apostles' Creed. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't believe those things, but don't ever fall. Here's one of Satan's lies. If you can tick off the Apostles' Creed and say, I really believe that without crossing your fingers, you're in, you're done, you're sealed. Look at James 2.19. James, brother of Jesus, says, uh, even the demons believe. Have you ever thought about that? Satan and the whole realm of the demonic, they are the most biblically orthodox, Bible-believing creatures in the universe. Demons do not sit around arguing over, was Jesus born of a virgin or not? They don't have a gathering like the Jesus Seminar, when they, let's vote, did Jesus say this? They don't vote on that. They know everything Jesus said. They witnessed, they witnessed it all. Um, they can tick off the Apostles' Creed backwards and forwards. And if you ask the demons, do you believe this stuff is true? They would say, yeah, of course it's true. So, I believe the Apostles' Creed. I believe all the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. What makes me different from a demon or from Satan? Some of you might be saying, not much. Uh, and you'd be right, I'm an abject sinner. I deserve hell along with Satan. But what makes me different? What makes a Christian then? What's the difference between a Christian and a demon? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, they don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. But when Jesus says, come, follow me, take up your cross daily and follow me. Have you done that? Do you do that? Have the demons done that? No. They do not follow Christ. They're trying to get away from him. In fact, they're kind of surprised he shows up in Gentile territory. Um, so think about that. The Christian faith is more than just intellectual assent to carnal doctrine. That's important. You should have that. But beyond that, 
Are you following Christ, or at least stumblingly trying to? None of us follow him completely faithfully. Are you wanting to go in the direction Jesus wants you to go? Are you willing to go? And I always like to say this because most Christians I know don't get it. Study where Jesus goes in the Gospels. He's almost always moving toward pain and brokenness. Almost always. Like right here, he's heading to where a good Jew would never go. Um, so he comes into this area of the Gadarenes. These guys are fierce. Everybody doesn't go. They avoid that area. Here comes Jesus. And the demons are kind of surprised. And they say, question number one, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Another way of translating that would be to say, what the heck are you doing here? They didn't expect him in this God-forsaken Gentile territory. They thought they were safe from Christ by being here. Let me point out a couple of things that's very encouraging. It ought to be encouraging to you and me when we think about Satan and the demonic and spiritual warfare. Notice the demons know exactly who he is. Probably nobody else in that territory does, but they, they say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? I mean, they're confessing that he is the Son of God, but they're not following him. Question number two, have you come here to torment us before the time? Notice that the demons know their faith. This is something I don't understand about Satan and about the demons. Okay. Um, they once were angels of light, close to God. I mean, back in Job, remember, we see Satan come into the throne room of God. And so they're intelligent beings. Why, if Satan really knows who God is, why would he rebel against them knowing that he could never win, ultimately? And all the demons that went with him, they know their fate. Have you come to torment us before the time? They know that there's going to come a time when Jesus is going to absolutely destroy them. And the fallacy of that joke I uh, told is a fallacy that a lot of people believe that somehow Satan and the demonic are in charge of hell. Uh, they run it, you know, welcome to hell here. Um, we're going to turn you on a spit and poke you with pitchfork. No, 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 no. Uh, the sovereign God of the universe is in charge of hell. I don't like the doctrine of hell, but it's in the Bible. I'm not going to give that the black bean. Because um, Jesus speaks more about hell than he does about heaven. And I'm going to take Jesus' word for it and hope that when I get into eternity, I'll go, okay, now I understand. I read an article one time that talked about how hell is a part of God's love. You probably can't understand that unless you've lost a child from a drunk driver and the guy got away. You know, you kind of want justice to be completely meted out. So anyway, um, I kind of hold my nose and go, there is a hell, and I don't want to go there. And, um, but these, these demons are not in charge. The Bible says Satan and the demons, they're going to be the inmates in hell for eternity. And so they don't, they don't run the show. So if these demons know that Jesus one day is going to get them, why don't they just surrender right there and go, you know, come on. 
we're with you now. We're on your side. But they don't. I don't know why. Then I have to look in the mirror and go, why do I, what did I just think that thing I just thought about that person? Why did I do this? When I'm supposedly a follower of Christ. So we all do it to some extent. Pride is what the theologians have said is the driver with Satan and the demons. They just can't. They want, we want, to, they want to be God. And if we are honest with ourselves, that's us as well. I really would like to run the universe. I, do, I know I'm a fairly intelligent person. I know that if I did, it would be worse than it is now. Uh, but somehow I, st- I still want to do it. And I think I can fix some things better than God is not fixing them. And, and I'm sure it would be a total loss. But we all would really like to be God. That's why I said the other week, it's best to begin each day by saying, good morning, God. I'm glad you're God and I'm not. And now I'm going to follow you. you. You give me the marching orders. So these, these demons know that they're going to be destroyed and they seem to have some sense that this is not the time. So are you going to do that before the time? For the final judgment day? So these guys really know a lot about Christ and about their own future. Now why did they want to be cast into these pigs? Um, I consulted some commentaries on this and Apparently, demons like to possess things. They like to take up residence in material bodies of some sort. And since Jesus is casting them out of this human being, they say, well, next best thing around here, how about these pigs? I guess they don't know the pigs are going to rush down into the sea, and they all drown. And what becomes of the demons then? It doesn't tell us. And I'm not, I'm not an expert in demonology. I, can't, I don't think you can kill a demon by drowning him in a pig? I, I don't know. doesn't say. Um, but what I'd say to Bertrand Russell, who said, here's evidence why you shouldn't believe in God because he's not a part of PETA. Um, here's, here's God. Here's Jesus saying, the life of one human being is much more precious to me than 2,000 you know, if you're, I said last week, you know, everything in life boils down to the simple question of, do you believe there's a creator that made everything? Or is this all just a, a, a big accident of some electromagnetic particles over time and by chance having to bump into each other and producing us? If you believe the latter, then there is no meaning or purpose to anything. Cause it's all an accident. Dar- Hardcore Darwinians will tell you there's no meaning or purpose to evolution. Then the next sentence they'll say, and then this animal figured out it would be an advantage to me if I had eyeballs. So they evolved. I always praise man and go, isn't that purpose and meaning? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, So if you're outside of a relationship with God, you can never live out your belief system in total congruence. Um, but, if you, but if you are in that camp, then swine are no less valuable than human beings. And that's where Roe v. Wade came from. When you re- if you really believe that there's a creator, then everybody in this room was made in the image of God, no matter what your race, sex, 
mental state, physical state, spiritual state. Um, you can be flatlined in a hospital. That person still made in the image of God. And like our eco-essential tenants say, our job is to protect and enhance human life from birth to, to death. And that's why many of us pro-life people, I, I'm not even for rape and incest, and, and because that's still a human being made in the image of God. I, and I know that may have sound abhorrent to some of you, but that's, I don't see how you can give on that and not just, you know, that person's no less made in the image of God. And some, there used to be a columnist named Char, uh, Charles Grizzard. When Ann and I lived in Charlotte, he had a column in the Charlotte Observer every week, and they, people write in questions to him. This is back in the late 70s, and somebody wrote in and said, I know you're pro-choice, but if you had to present an argument for pro-life, what would that be? And he laid out this whole scenario. There was this mentally retarded woman who was raped by a guy with syphilis. And there was like 18 other things wrong with this picture. And you're like going, no way. I think I'm not even pro-life now. And he said, okay, that happened. That really did happen. And if you had aborted that baby, we, the world would not have had Ludwig von Beethoven. So um, I'm glad for our Supreme Court, thank God. So these pigs are not as, 2,000 pigs don't weigh as much in, to, they're not as valued as, as one single human being, this, or these two demoniacs. Um, now it's kind of interesting what happened, you know, uh, all the pigs die. I, the pig herders, you would assume, are pretty upset. They just lost their economy. And by the way, here's another satanic lie that he comes to you and me with, and you probably don't even realize it. But after 40-some years of being a pastor, I've figured out that most people's faith is driven by economics more than anything else. If you tell me to follow Christ, and I see that this is actually going to probably uh, benefit me financially, you're right there. But if it's going to cost us financially, we're like, did God really say that? Um, you know, my, my family's from the, the South. My great-grandfather, Captain James Madison Skates, the 40th Virginia, survivor of Pickett's Shark. You know, he fought for the South. He didn't own slaves. Um, and, you know, someday, I hope, I'll get to talk to him in heaven and say, what were you fighting for? If you saw Ken Burns' film in the Civil War, my favorite part of the film was uh, these two Confederate prisoners have been captured somewhere in Tennessee, and this Union officer walks over to them and says, can I ask you guys a question? Sure. Why are you fighting us? <laughs> And one of the prisoners looks at him and says, because you're here. <laughs> you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> and I hope that was my grandfather. But, you know, there were Bible-believing Christians in the South who defended slavery. The chief one was Presbyterian, James Henley Thornwell, 
probably the greatest theologian of the Southern Presbyterian Church. But he defended slavery and, um, and it's so easy to justify something like that when it's the basis of your whole economic system. When I went, Ann and I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina for uh, a year. I was an intern at Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. Now I grew up in the Associate Reform Presbyterian Church, uh, old Scottish Covenant uh, denomination, only about 30,000 in the whole denomination. I never saw a Christian in public in my church smoke or drink. I didn't hear anybody say you shouldn't. They just didn't. And so <laughs> my first Sunday at Forest Hill Prayer, this is Charlotte, North Carolina, on the tobacco road. And between services, I went outside and there was a bunch of elders out there. <laughs> and this was right after um, the Surgeon General's report had come out, you know. They had to put the thing on the side of the cigarette pack saying, you know, this is going to kill you. And these guys were all college educated, Chapel Hill, Duke. And I, I was naive. I went up to them. I'd never seen committed Christian smoke. And I said, um, how do you justify this, you know? And they went all around the barn. Well, after I'd been there for a while, I realized these guys own stock in the tobacco companies, you know, so they're good. We'll do anything to rationalize away. And I'm not saying you're going to hell if you smoke. Uh, I just don't think you're very smart. And uh, forgive me, I don't have many political skills. But, um, <laughs> but I do the same thing. If, this, if something's going to cost me, I try rationalization to rationalize means you tell yourself rational lies and Satan Satan's whispering those in your ear did God really say that what business of this is yours Jesus how many times do you and I do that with different facets of our lives like my money what business is that of yours Jesus, or my body. What business is that of you, yours, Jesus? I can do anything I want. I go to church on Sunday, so I can do anything the rest of the week with my body. How do I treat my employees? What do you mean? Or my employer? What business of that is yours, Jesus? How I talk outside of church. What business is that is Christ? That's not spiritual. Satan wants you and me to be Gnostic Christians. Do you know what Gnostics are? Gnosticism was a first century Christian heresy. It's still around. It's still rampant. It's, it's here at First Press. I know personally Gnostics here. Gnostics said the only important thing in life is the spiritual, not the material. In fact, really hardcore Gnostics believe that a demigod created the material universe and the real God came to redeem it in Christ. And so um, it's funny, Gnosticism cuts two ways. Uh, so you say, you look at your body and go, well, what's important is the spiritual part of me. God, God's interested in my heart, in my soul, not interested in my body. Therefore, Licentiousness, I can do anything I want with my body and God doesn't really care. 
and you run into Christians all over the place. Say, why do you go to church on Sunday? Al Capone was a Gnostic Christian. He was in Mass every Sunday. And then through the rest of the week. And he gave tons of money to the church. So he knew he was going to heaven. He was basically a Gnostic. Or the other way is you become a legalist. And you, get, you become an aesthetic and you know, and beat down the body. The body's bad, and, and uh, you deprive yourself of any pleasures, and you know, go sit on a pole out in the desert somewhere. Neither of those, both of those, Satan's going, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Bible teaches that we are a body-soul unity. The Bible knows nothing of a spirit, a human spirit, separated from the body. Yeah, but what about when we die? Yeah. Your spirit goes to be with God, your body's in the grave, but that ain't the last of the story. That's not the final chapter. The final chapter is Jesus returns. I hope I'm alive at the time. I'd like to skip the death thing. Like Woody Allen, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And um, I'd like to just be translated, you know, and skip the... But probably I won't. I don't know. But uh, then I will have a resurrection body. Not, we're not going to be spirits floating around on an ethereal cloud somewhere. Um, and Jesus is going to meet us in heaven. Guess what? He never gives up his material body. Nowhere in scripture does it say that. When he returns, it's going to be a physical body. And he's going to keep that body throughout eternity. Now, I don't know how the Trinity works with Father, His Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, Spirit, and Jesus. That's one of those things that when I get there, I'll go, oh, now I understand. But, so, Satan wants you to think that a lot of areas of your life, Jesus is not interested in. What is that of you? Why do you care about that, Jesus? I'm going to church on Sunday. I read my, I have my quiet time. Um, he's interested in every tiny fraction of your, he's interested in what you and I are doing at Tuesday at 4 o'clock as he is what we're doing right here, right now. And what we're going to be doing in the sanctuary or Westminster Hall. So Satan would like you to think differently. And um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to stop here and see if anybody has any questions. We still have a little bit of time. Any, anybody have a question or a comment? Well, most churches, this one's doing real well. Most churches aren't, and most churches are on the ropes, and they're not able to do. I really believe, doesn't matter what size of the church, I really believe that every church, God has all the people there with all the resources necessary to carry out whatever God calls that church to do. And um, <laughs> when we were leaving the denomination, I'm not going to name the person, but one person who was on the other side uh, filed a lawsuit against this congregation. And he, he'd grown up in this church since he was a little boy in the 1930s, on up to 2015 when we left. He, want, he filed a suit against the church. He had figured up how much money he had contributed to the church his whole life. And he wanted that be given back to him 
and I saw the lawsuit. I can't remember the exact figure, but it was something like $8,000 or something. Then I thought, I've got a calculator. <laughs> He's older than I am. He's probably about 80. So I added up how many Sundays were in his life. <laughs> he gave about a nickel every week. You know? I would be embarrassed. You know, why did he want people to know what he... I guess he thought, I'm a big giver. Remember, the, the amazing thing is you own nothing. God has given everything to you. The grace, as God says, just give me 10. You can have 90% and do whatever you want with. I just need 10% invested in my kingdom. And Jesus says, you know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. I like to, I don't, I love sports, basically baseball and football. I have no interest in horse racing. When we lived in Dallas, they have Lone Star Park, and they had a whole page in the Dallas Morning News, all the races, you know. I never looked at that page, ever. I couldn't care less. But if somebody hacked into my bank account and called me on the phone and said, hey, Rob, I put everything in your bank account on, you know, Seabiscuit in the fifth, fifth race out at Lone Star Park. Do you think I would check that page the next day? Probably not. I would be out at Lone Star Park cheering that dad blame horse on. By the way, there's a story of the Presbyterian pastor goes to the track and uh, somebody said, well, if you're going to play the horses, you need to devise a system. Well, how do you do that? He said, just go out and observe and see if you can figure out a system. So he goes out there and he notices before the first race, a Roman Catholic priest goes down to the, the starting gate and he picks up one horse, makes the sign of the cross in the horse's head. That horse wins. Second race, same thing happens. That horse wins. Third race, that horse wins. Fourth race, same thing. That horse wins. Presbyterian pastor says, I figured out, I got my system. He goes to the gate before the next race, puts his life saving, waits for the Catholic priest to go down there and blesses one of the horses and puts his life savings on. And the bell rings, boom, the gates open. That horse goes about 20 yards and drops dead. And the pastor's lost everything. So he, he sees the priest and he goes over to him and says, I, you know, it's not your fault, but I was watching every horse you blessed won the race of that last race. I put my, everything I had on that horse you blessed. He said, you're not Roman Catholic, are you? He said, no, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. He goes, yeah. you don't know the difference between a blessing and last rites. <laughs> we need to pray. Let's pray. And Paul will be teaching the month of July in here. And I was just talking to him this morning. I, I thought it'd be neat, maybe the beginning of August, if we took one Sunday and I call it an Ask the Pastor session, where the week before we give you like index cards and you can write one or two questions you've always wanted to ask pastor. You don't sign it, so it's totally anonymous. Then we'll collect them that week and Paul and I will sit up here and we'll divide them up and we'll answer them. Nothing's off the table. It can be about anything. Um, I think it'd be fun and informative and I, I always like doing that. So Paul said, that sounds great. So we'll probably do that maybe one of those early August Sundays. So let's pray and then you can go home or go to worship. Lord God, thank you that uh, the demons know who you are and they shudder. And Lord, help us not to just be intellectual, intellectually invested in your kingdom, but to invest our total beings in following Christ. Um, we thank you that uh, you torment demons, but you don't torment us. 
And we pray that you would protect us and our families. Uh, remind us there is a spiritual war going on out there. And we do best by staying close to you. And um, bless Bob as he preaches, Alex as he preaches, pour through them the gift of preaching today. And in, in, in every faithful church of Jesus Christ across the nation and the world, may your gospel of grace be heralded with confidence and passion. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.